We're throwing off the filters of tradition and culture to discover what the Bible really says about relationships, relationships with God, with ourselves, and with others. Welcome to this episode of Relationship Truth Unfiltered. Today's episode is the second part of Leslie's interview with Nancy Piercy, a professor and scholar-in-residence at Houston Christian University. She's known as one of the five top women apologists according to Christianity Today, and The Economist calls her America's preeminent evangelical Protestant female intellectual. Nancy's latest book, just released last month, is called The Toxic War on Masculinity, How Christianity Reconciles the Sexes. In last week's episode, we learned that evangelical Christian men, ones who are living out their faith, have the lowest levels of abuse and divorce. In other words, contrary to popular belief, true Christian men do not have the same divorce rate as the rest of society. They also discussed the roots of various gender stereotypes, the secularization of masculinity, and the importance of cultivating a biblical understanding of masculinity. And now for the second part of Leslie's interview with Professor Nancy Piercy. This was one of the most interesting things, uh, again, non-Christian historian, who makes the point that our concept of masculinity derives from our view of God. And so he says, uh, start with polytheism, you know, the worship of many gods. So you have the gods on Mount Olympus in ancient Greece, you have the Norse gods and so on. This is how the historian puts it. He says, in polytheism, the gods drank, they wenched, they fought, they trumpeted their power. So polytheism led to an exaltation of the warrior values, heroic virtues. You know, to be a real man is to be a warrior. So then the historian says, what about monotheism? Well, there's some forms of monotheism where God is you know, con completely transcendent. I, I quote a uh, Islamic writer who says, Allah, in Islam, Allah, would not condescend to have a personal relationship with mere mortals. So in uh, that form of monotheism, it focuses on authority and power. You know, to, so th to be the man is to be the man with power and authority. And then this historian says Judaism, it's also monotheistic, but God is in relationship with his people, a covenant relationship. So he says in Judaism, the model for masculinity is the loving father. So he has authority, but he's in contact. He's in relationship. He's a loving father. And then this historian says, Christianity rose, and it complexified the whole picture <laughs> because Jesus taught servant leadership. And Jesus taught that to be a leader, you are the servant. And this historian actually says, Jesus taught that there are many virtues like love and compassion and gentleness that have been stereotypically associated with women. And Jesus said, no, those are for men too. You know, the gifts of the spirit, the fruit of the spirit. And so it's fascinating to hear from a secular historian saying it is Christianity that actually gave men permission to be their whole self, you know, not to be a, a, just one stereotype, not to be just cut in half with the so-called masculine virtues, but to also express the feminine virtues because they're made in God's image to be a whole persons, right? So they're caring as well as, well as courageous, right? They're, they're servants as well as leaders. And so Christianity gives men 
the motivation to be whole persons, reflecting the whole image of God. And I think it also gives women that opportunity that we're not just the loving, sacrificial caregivers, but we're also bold warriors as you know, Deborah was, and as others in the scriptures were, we are brave as Esther needed to be. And, and we have those qualities as we're both created in God's image, that we can embody some of those stronger traits that don't seem traditionally feminine in the Christian world, but yet God's image calls us to be like him. And that means embodying some of those qualities as well. Yes, yes. I, I bring people back several times in the book to the cultural mandate. Um, the cultural mandate is in Genesis 1, where God says, you know, he's, he's created the universe, he's created the animals and plants, and finally he creates human beings. And the first thing he tells them is, what did I create you for? <laughs> What's your first job description? And he says, be fruitful and multiply and subdue the earth. And in the very streamlined language of Genesis 1, be fruitful and multi multiply does not mean just the family, but also all of the social institutions that historically grow out of the family. You know, so the clan, the tribe, the village, uh, eventually the, the nation. The, and of course, social institutions arise to meet specific needs like a school, a church, the marketplace. And so that phrase means that you are meant to develop the entire social world. Subdue the earth means harness the natural resources. So, you know, people often think of, well, it starts with farming. Yeah, but mining and building bridges, building, making buildings, inventing computers, composing music. I had a student who once said, oh, come on, composing music. How is that part of the cultural mandate? So I, I play the violin and I said, what's a violin made out of? He said, well, wood. <laughs> and what's the bow made out of? You know, horse hair. So all the transcendent beauty we associate with music starts with harnessing the raw materials of nature. And so I bring the, the book back to this many times because uh, I'm speaking mostly to men because the real man is often thought to find his true nature escaping from civilization, from, from women, from family, you know, getting out in the wild, getting out in nature. And I have nothing against nature, but I don't think it's where you find your masculine identity. We, in the late 19th century, in a, in a reaction against those reform, reform movements, many men began to say, oh, you know, we've become over-civilized. That was a new word in the English language at the late 19th century. Was, you know, since the Industrial Revolution, we're not growing up on the farms anymore. We're becoming soft and effeminate. And the solution, many people began to say, is to get away from the city. You know, this is when the Western was invented <laughs> the, as, a no as a novel, you know, hanging out with the Indians <laughs> and the cowboys. And th this is how you discover your true nature. And I said, no, no, actually, go back to Genesis. <laughs> It says your true nature is to be deeply embedded in the social structures, starting with marriage and family, not getting away from it and embedding yourself deeply in productive and creative work. And so it's very much counter to what men are hearing a lot today on how to find your true nature is, is to be responsible, to roll up your sleeves <laughs> And, and do the cultural task that God gave us from the beginning. You know, this is pre-fall. So this is our intrinsic calling as humans. And you mentioned women. So I was on a podcast not long ago where, uh, let me say this. The, the host was sort of implying that women were asking for too much. Well, he said it literally. Women are expecting too much. 
and that women should be happy just being homemakers. <laughs> and, mm. and I loved being a mother, right? I, I homeschooled my kids. And being a mother is maybe the best thing, you know, that ever happened to me. But women were given the cultural mandate too. There's a reason why if, if, work, if the industrial revolution took work out of the home, men's work, it also took women's work out of the home. You know, women used to be very much involved in household manufacture. They made an economic contribution. They were economically indispensable, which was a huge boost to their self-esteem. They knew they were indispensable because they were canning food and making clothes from scratch, even weaving the cloth and, and churning butter and making bread. I mean, women were indispensable to the household economy. So it's, it's uh, not only men who lost their work after the Industrial Revolution, but so did women. And for the first time, women's role was reduced to cleaning the house and taking care of young children. Well, it's not surprising that the feminist movement arose about this time because they said women had actually did suffer a genuine loss, a genuine loss in the ability to have access to all these interesting and productive work, these different tasks that they used to do, and also the status that went with it. Mm -hmm. Now they were no longer contributing economically to the household. They were economically dependent on the wages of their husband. And they, they suffered a great loss in status. Already in the 19th century, you see newspaper columnists writing disparagingly of women and saying, oh, they become lazy and idle and just you know taking the money from their husbands. So they, they lost status. And... Uh, both culturally and in the home. They lost a, a voice in the home as well, because then if they asked their husbands to, be, to, to contribute to the upkeep of the home and taking care of the children, well, that was women's work, and they were nagging. They were not supposed to be asking their husbands to do these things because their husbands were, they were out there um, earning a living, and when they came home, they could veg out if they wanted to. <laughs> they didn't come home to a second, second job being a really involved husband and father. So the cultural mandate is for men and women. It's not that women were told to be fruitful and multiply and men were told to subdue the earth. <laughs> they both are supposed to be involved in both. And they are, to, to be honest, they are much more fulfilled if they have a better balance of both yeah. family and work. Nancy, most of our audience is probably women who have been married to toxic men. Um, you know that. And so what would you say to them? Two things. One is if they have little boys who are emulating their dads in toxic ways of, you know, the bully, the, the mean, you know, the authority, I've got to win, I've got to be right at all costs. Um, I'm more important than my sisters. I'm more important than my mom. I have the final say kind of toxicity in the home. How might they speak into their young boys development, not just in those moments of correcting their behavior, but in those in his development as a boy to man person to become a good man? How might a mom do that if she's recognizing that the father in the home or the father outside of the home is toxic? He, he has embraced this real man, me first, you know, I'm the king and, and nobody else has a voice but me. Um, how does she teach her young boy to be a good man? What might you advise her to do? Yeah, I, I start my book um, with an introduction about my own experience. I did have a very toxic father. 
And it was actually a psychologist who, who urged me to put it at the front of the book. Mm-hmm. And he said, uh, it gives you more credibility because mm-hmm. we realize now you're not just speaking from an ivory tower. Right. You know, that my, my father was severely physically abusive. Um, in books on abuse, they sometimes ask, was it open hand or closed fist? And it was closed fist. You know, mm-hmm. he, he was punching us and kicking us. And, and so we, we have that, I have that in my background. And, and by the way, the same psychologist, <laughs> you, you'll get a kick out of this. The same psychologist said, when I first started reading your book, I thought, oh, no. <laughs> he read my story and said, oh, no, it's going to be some angry woman. You know, she's been abused as a child and now she's angry at men. And then he said, it turns out, no, that's not how you write at all. It's clear that you did go through um, very thorough psychological and spiritual healing, which I did. You know, mm-hmm. um, And I tell that story at the end of the book. But... Um, I have I have two chapters on um, domestic violence in Christian homes. And the reason for that is what we said earlier, that nominal Christian men, or people who claim the label but don't actually live it out, are actually worse than secular men. So I had to deal with that. Otherwise, it would look like I was sweeping it out of the carpet. So I have two chapters on uh, domestic violence. I think one of the most surprising things I found, like you, I, I kind of divided up. I have... I, I don't start with disappointing marriages like you do. <laughs> I, I start with difficult. I start with difficult marriages, and then I go to uh, verbal abuse and then physical abuse. So I have three stages. But what I found most interesting was that psychologists have really changed their tune in recent years. Leslie, when you and I were growing up, and it's still the, the case, that women are told it's your fault, it's your responsibility, you know, you have responsibility to make this marriage work. So you have to try harder. You have to love more, more unconditionally, forgive more, make his favorite foods, have sex more often, be more submissive, die to self more. Uh, and, and he will blossom into the man you want him to be. Well, right. women have done this for years, many, many long years, and have discovered it doesn't work. Right. You know, if somebody is truly abusive, being nice to him doesn't change him. Um, it just takes, feeds the monster. It feeds the monster. Yeah, that was one of the quotes I got from you. <laughs> I, to, to your audience, I do quote Leslie Vernick in this book. She's my best. She's my favorite. <laughs> my favorite um, source uh, resource mm-hmm. on this subject. What I found interesting though is that there have just recently, very recently, and you were one of the first um, psychologists and counselors have begun to recognize that. Just being nicer doesn't work with truly abusive people. Like we knew that you, we knew you can't acquiesce to the bully on the playground. You know, he just gets worse. Uh, you, you realize in, in uh, international affairs, you can't acquiesce to a belligerent nation you know, like Hitler. We've known that, but somehow we overlook that in, in marriage and we act as if somehow if a woman's just nicer, her husband will change. No, truly abusive people take forgiveness as acceptance of bad behavior. They take kindness as a weakness. Okay, I can walk all of you. So I, w- I think I wrote this book at the right time because there are just recently books coming out saying, no, this doesn't work. So I was able to find enough resources to help give women the, the message that, no, it's not up to you to just always be nicer. The message is Matthew 18. Mm-hmm. Matthew 18 is where Jesus says, you, when somebody's sinning, you confront them. You know, and, and husband and wife are, first of all, brother and sister in Christ. And so they owe each other the same thing you would owe to any Christian. 
your more specialized relationship as husband and wife does not, you know, obliterate the more fundamental relationship as brother and sister in Christ. But so let me give you a few of the more surprising facts I found. I really appreciated um, John Gottman, who uh, has done the most empirical research on marriage. He has what he calls a love lab. It's decked out as a bed and breakfast and couples come there and stay for, for up to 72 hours. And they are wired up so that he can test their heart rate and their breathing rate and their sweating. And they have complex codes for behavior, you know, from rolling your eyes in disgust and coding uh, language, you know, from put downs to placating. And then they put all of this into the computer and analyze it mathematically. And he's become famous because mm -hmm. he's able to predict with 93.6 accuracy within only 15 minutes of observation, whether a couple will divorce. The most surprising thing he said though, is that the person who's responsible in the marriage is the man. The person who actually has the greatest impact on whether you have a good marriage or not is the man. And here's how he put it. He said, women tend to continue to reach out even in unhappy marriages. It's women who read the books on marriage. It's women who go to the therapist. It's women who seek out pa pastoral counseling. And so he says, the main thing that matters is whether the man responds. And he says, our data show that too often men do not return the favor. Men do not respond. And so he says, 65% of men do not respect their wives. Or his actual words are, they do not accept influence from their wives. And he defines that as they don't take their wives concerns and opinions into account. They don't include their wives in the decision-making. And he said, when, when husbands do that, their marriage is 81% more likely to break up, you know, either to divorce or to settle into long-term unhappiness. And in, in one of his books, he writes one book uh, to, young, to young men. And in that he turns to men and gives them you know, a direct message. He says, men, <laughs> what you do in your marriage is by a large margin, that's his words, by a large margin is what's going to make it a good marriage or not. You have the power to make it a good marriage. And he, he's careful to say, I'm not trying to blame or shame men. You know, he's, he's, he doesn't want to just discourage men. What he wants to do is give, encourage them by telling them how much power they have. He says, you have a powerful lever to improve your marriage. So I have been excited to see that more and more psychologists are saying, well, they're putting the responsibility right where God puts it. God says, all the way back in Genesis, who's supposed to take the initiative? Therefore, a man will leave his childhood home and his parents and his family of origin. A man will take the initiative to leave and cleave, you know, to cleave to his wife. I think the scripture is basically saying that it is up to men. I mean, God will hold the men responsible for their marriage and their family. And the psychologists are now showing that that's absolutely true. And so let's close with what ways can a woman speak to her husband that he might 
might have an opportunity to listen. You said this a majority of them won't. And we find that true. And even Jesus warns us. You know, I love the passage in Matthew 7 when he says, you know, after you have decided not to judge and condemn in your heart, after you've taken the log out of your own eye, after you've attempted to remove the speck out of someone else's eye, don't cast your pearls before swine right? If they refuse to listen, don't keep knocking yourself out, girl, because it's not going to happen. They're going to trample you with it. But if a woman is listening and she's saying, boy, I've got some little guys in my house who are kind of copying their dad and I want them to be good men. I want them to grow up and, and respect me as their mom and respect other women and care for them and be a good man. What might they start saying to both maybe their husband or to their child, that might be some words of wisdom to this next generation of kids coming up. Yeah, I think the most important thing, of course, is to model it, which is what you're suggesting. You know, don't cast your pearls before swine. And, and I have to preface this by saying that most of the people out there will not understand what you're doing. I ran this book through several classes, undergrads, graduate students. I ran it through neighborhood reading groups. <laughs> uh, I, I have lots of reading groups now from my, all of my books because, because they helped me find what could be unintentionally offensive. And here's what I found. Most people don't understand. They don't. If they have not experienced abuse themselves, here's the response I kept getting. If I said, Matthew 18, you know, you need to learn how to be love, loving confrontation. I would get the response constantly. Well, that seems pretty harsh. Don't, don't we want to do more loving forgiveness and grace? Mm -hmm. And so I had to repeatedly say in the book, yes, we start there. We start with love and forgiveness and grace. The trouble is many women have done, been doing that for years and years. And I found out that was, there are some truly abusive people out there and they do not respond well to that. And so you do have to start modeling to your children some form of having a backbone and standing up it's hard for somebody who's been beaten down. Right. If a wife has been beaten down for many, many years yeah. with verbal abuse uh, and possibly physical abuse as well, it's not easy. And it takes a long time to give up on somebody. Mm -hmm. <laughs> mm -hmm. um, no, nobody wants to hear what you just said, which is sometimes you stop casting your pearls before swine. Sometimes you realize I am using up a tremendous amount of love and psychic energy and time on someone who's not going to change. Mm -hmm. And I should refocus my gifts maybe on something that will actually make a difference in the world. You know, I've been given my gifts by God. This was part of the Gary Thomas book, by the way, When to Walk Away. He said, there's a time when you realize this person is probably not going to change, at least not in the near future. <laughs> and, and it doesn't mean you stop loving them. It doesn't mean you stop praying for them. But it does mean you stop pouring all of your energy and gifts into them because it's a dead end. Gary Thomas says, sometimes you need to realize you have a mission to God. You know, God gave you your gifts and talents and skills so that you would have a mission. And the goal of using Matthew 18 is to protect your mission, is mm -hmm. to go take those gifts and talents and skills that you have and apply them somewhere else where the, someone will be more receptive, where you can actually do something. So I think modeling, modeling that before your children is probably the most um, effective. And the other side of it, Leslie, of course, is the kids who don't model themselves on the abusive husband, but who are equally beaten down. Mm -hmm. 
Mm-hmm. And so you have to spend time. The the, the gentler boys, <laughs> the the gentler uh, in my family. Yeah, we we had both. And when my dad was abusive, but we had some. Some of my brothers were very much beaten down, yeah. and had we had to do the opposite. We had to help them <laughs> build them up mm-hmm. and help them to realize that just because your father's like this does not mean that's the only model out there. Right. You know, there are, there are healthy, positive models and I, I want to love and support and help you to survive in the face of the onslaught of, of emotional abuse that, that is, you know, pouring out on the whole family, not just the wife, mm-hmm. but on the kids too. Yeah. Um, so I think uh, the biggest answer I think is, to model it because if you don't have it yourself you're not going to give it to your kids and so that's our message to you who are listening if you're in a toxic relationship i think the first thing that we want to do is oh how can i fix him how can i fix him how can i make him less toxic and that's a good goal if it works but if you are attempting to have a conversation with your husband about these things you invite him to even look at Nancy's book, or you do that together and you realize that he is not interested. He doesn't want to hear from you. He's not teachable. Jesus said to the Pharisees, you're not listening. You're blind. You're not listening. You're not, you're deaf. You're blind. You won't hear me. And even Jesus's words, as perfect as they were, didn't get into them. And so don't put it on yourself that your purpose and your mission by God is to change another person. That is not your purpose or your mission. Each person has to stand before God and be accountable for how they've turned out. And so your job at this point is to get strong and healthy enough to not retaliate in sin or get overcome by evil, but to be able to raise your kiddos in a healthy enough environment that they see a difference and that they see what healthy looks like, at least from one of your parents. And so that's your goal. And I think, Nancy, you can really support that being grown in an environment like that. I grew up in an environment where my mom was a toxic person. And thank God I had a dad who was who wasn't a toxic male, who was a good man, who spent money going to court back 50 years ago, trying to get custody of his children because he saw the toxic environment we were in. And it wasn't that he was going to ever change my mom, but he did his work to get healthy and do what he needed to do to have influence over his kids. And so that's what people need to do if you're in that kind of situation. But for any men who are listening or pastors, what words would you give them to help our men choose to be good men versus real men? One theme that I hit on in my book, The Toxic War Masculinity, is that it is true that many men who are toxic do have some sort of psychological issues driving it, you know, that are behind it. You're not, a, you know, if you're not a psychologist, it's not your job to solve it. But I would say for, for counselors and pastors, it would be good for them to realize that many of these men probably themselves have a father wound, right? The, the father wound of having been raised by a father who himself was perhaps harsh and abusive and unloving and didn't meet the child's need for love and, and attention. And so, uh, again, it's a way of, try, of trying to be kind enough that these men might actually listen to you by acknowledging that you, you don't just enumerate their faults and failings. You dig deeper and try to figure out whether they have some sort of trauma in their own background. Often that is the case so that you deal with the man on the on the whole level. You don't just say, well, you're doing something wrong. You try to draw them into a support group, a men's group, 
where they can be ministered to as whole persons as well. And again, it, there's, there's no guarantees. Most men who go to support groups for domestic violence are there on court orders. <laughs> they do not choose to go there. Right. They're there on court orders. And, and I quote, by the way, this, some of my best quotes are from counselors who counsel men who are in court-ordered counseling because they're the only ones who are hearing from these men firsthand. But there are some who will listen to a pastor and who will say, yes, I am dealing with some things in my own past, in my, my own fathering. The most common mistake that people make if a couple comes to them and the husband's being abusive in some way, the most common mistake is to treat it as a marriage problem and to bring the couple in together. First of all, a woman usually won't tell you <laughs> in front of her husband uh, if he's being abusive because she's going to pay a price later. When they go home, he's going he's to jump on her. I mean, verbally or physically. She, he's going he, to punish her for talking openly to the pastor. Chris Moles is one of the pastors. His name is Chris Moles. He, he uh, works with men in court-ordered counseling. And he says, the most common mistake is to blame the victim. Right. It's to say, you know, how did she trigger him? What did she do? And to let the perpetrator off the hook. My chapters start with longish opening anecdotes. And one of the chapters on abuse, that's exactly what happened. By the time her, her husband escalated from verbal abuse to physical abuse, you know, punching her, her pastor and elder said, well, he shouldn't have hit you. But what did you do to provoke him? Right. It's always the woman's fault. Mm -hmm. So the most common mistake is to say, well, this is a relationship problem. It's not a relationship problem. And again, I'm glad we now have experts to quote on that, like Chris Moles, who says this is not a relationship problem. It's a problem in the heart of the abuser, right. not in the dynamics of the relationship. So the goal is not to fix the relationship. The goal is to address the sin. Mm -hmm. And so... I have several quotes from people who are actually doing this kind of work on how to be more effective. But that's the first step. Don't think that you can bring them into the counseling room together. And I'll, I'll give you one example. So this was from a non-Christian psychologist. He gives an example of a couple that came that had been coming to a therapist for, for a while, and he decided that they were ready to acknowledge their abuse. So he talked the wife into acknowledging that he was being abusive at home. And the husband acted shaken and repentant. And on the way home, he grabbed his wife's hair and pounded her head into the dashboard repeatedly saying, I told you never to talk about that with anyone. And that therapist said, I never counseled husband and wife to together again after that. I realized that the victim pays a price for being honest. Yeah. So always. that would that's the most common mistake. So you know, start with that one and then read the book and I'll give you some more. <laughs> well, Nancy, thank you so much. We we do care about our men. We do care about our boys and our sons and we do I think as a church need to create a culture of positive masculinity so that there's positive peer pressure for men who don't fit in with the good men model and they're trying to be the the tough guy in the church. See a whole example of good men, because good men are very appealing. They're very appealing to be around. And so we just have to really deal with this issue in a structured kind of way. And I'm so appreciative of all the research and the history that you've put behind this book that really makes sense to why men have become this 
real man example and to help us to just encourage uh, our young men and our boys to become good men. And for us as women, not to demonize or shame or disrespect men and still call them to be good men and not put up with their toxic, sinful, destructive, abusive behavior and not feel like that's suffering for Jesus, but it's actually enabling bad behavior to continue. And that's only hurtful to you, to them and to the entire family. Yes, those are some of your wonderful themes in your, in your books. And, and by the way, one of the other pushback I got was people saying, well, the real man should be the good man. Okay, yes, they should be. <laughs> but look, this is coming out of a sociological study showing that they've become decoupled. Yes. And so when people hear you say the real man, they need to recognize you're talking about how the secular world has decoupled them mm-hmm. so that they, they are different today. But yeah, mm-hmm. I got so much pushback. That was, that was another one that people just didn't understand at first. You always have to kind of give the context. Yeah. And so I'm so glad that you took your brave step and put this out there because I think it is worthy of a conversation, not only among secular psychologists or historians or professors who are teaching our young people in school, but also among church leaders and men and women who struggle with this issue. So thanks so much for being with us, Nancy. I appreciate you. Oh, thanks for having me. It's been a joy. All right. Let me pray for those who have been listening to this and have gotten a little triggered by some of what we've said. Um, Lord, we just pray for women and men who are listening to this broadcast. Maybe you recognize that you're living with a toxic man or maybe raising one, or maybe you are one. And Father, I just pray that we would want to be our best selves, that we would want to be a virtuous people, men and women of God, that we would want to be like our nature, and that is to be more and more like you. You've created us to be like you so that we would reflect you and be a light to a dark world. And so, Father, help us to do that and not enable and not label it as sacrificial suffering to enable bad behavior, toxic behavior, sinful behavior, disrespectful behavior, abusive behavior in any way, not in marriage, not in family, not with children, not in churches. Lord, that may we speak out in a good way against these things so that all may come to know you in a a way that doesn't seem like Jesus is the bully too and endorsing this kind of stuff. Father, thank you for Nancy. I pray that you would bless her book among her colleagues, among her students, among the churches that read it. And Father, that you would just continue to bring this message forward, that you have created us in your image for goodness and to provide a light to a dark world. Help us to do that in every way. In Jesus' name, amen. Thank you for listening to Relationship Truth Unfiltered. If you need clarity on whether your marriage is difficult, disappointing, or destructive, go to leslievernick.com forward slash start for Leslie's free quick start guide. It's totally private and will help you get clear on your next step. Again, that's leslievernick.com forward slash start. Until next time, may God bless your relationships with him, with yourself, and with others.